Welcome to Season 2 of Forged in Fire, where we explore LGBTQ plus leadership with guests from all over the world. You'll hear as they share how they navigated their journey through crucible experiences to develop into amazing leaders. Forged in Fire is hosted by Colonel Bree Fram and Dr. Liz Cavallero. Hi, I'm Bree Fram, an astronautical engineer in the U.S. Space Force. I'm passionate about building the leaders of tomorrow and learning about what the LGBTQ plus leaders of today can teach us. And I'm Dr. Liz Cavallero. I'm an adult development scholar and associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm also an experienced researcher, interviewer, leader development practitioner, and professional executive coach. Please join us as we discover the inspiring stories of how LGBTQ plus leaders are forged. Welcome to the first episode of season two of Forged in Fire. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Amanda Simpson. Amanda is an advisor and consultant on aerospace, energy, and DEI as founder and CEO of Third Segment, LLC. She's a nationally renowned speaker and has presented at corporations, government agencies, civic organizations, colleges around the country on technology and aerospace innovation, as well as gender and diversity. Formerly, she was Vice President for Research and Technology and Head of Sustainability at Airbus Americas. In the private sector, she also worked at Hughes Helicopters, Douglas Aircraft, Hughes Aircraft, and Raytheon Missile Systems. During the Obama administration, Amanda served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Operational Energy as the Executive Director of the U.S. Army Office of Energy Initiatives, Special Assistant to the Army Acquisition Executive, and Senior Technical Advisor to the U.S. Department of Commerce. Her education includes a B.S. in Physics, an M.S. in Engineering, and an M.B.A. She's a Fellow of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and the Royal Aeronautical Society. She's logged over 3,000 hours flying in more than 60 different types of aircraft, including float planes, flying boats, unmanned drones, helicopters, light aircraft, and multi-engine jets. She also happens to be a personal friend to go along with that fact that there are no shortage of accomplishments. In addition, she's a generous mentor. And also interesting in her story is that she's an incredible survivor. Amanda, thanks for joining us today on Forged in Fire. Well, thank you and and happy new year for those who haven't heard that yet this year. Ha ha ha. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be the be asked to kick off season two, uh, and it's wonderful that we finally figured out a time to make this happen. So, well, we are so thrilled you can join us, and I want to go back to kick this off with something that I just mentioned. You have talked a lot about the fact that you are a survivor. It is a broad topic, but can you tell us about some of the things that you've survived in your career? And maybe how some of those things grew you as a leader. Oh wow, I, I'm not even sure where to start on that. Um, there, you know, there were so many things that where I was counted out, um, either pushed down or excluded from opportunities. But I found ways to work around them, go over them, or sometimes, um, you know, leave because we have to sometimes vote with our our feet. But um, um, there's a particular story I like to tell. And 
this was sometime after I transitioned. And I was at the time the program manager within the special projects product line uh, at Raytheon Missile Systems. And what that meant was I was running about five or six small projects. These are projects from anywhere from three to 20 people. Um, our customers were the U.S. military, a variety of different things, but they're all very highly classified projects. And they would run from, you know, about one to three years in, in time span. And as each one ended, we concluded, fulfilled the contract, I would usually be signed, assigned another program so that I always had like I said, about six or so going on. After I transitioned a few months later, I noticed that I wasn't getting any new contracts. And the number of contracts went from, you know, six to five to four to three. And I found myself just not busy. And so I went to my director and said, you know, uh, Jim, what's up? I, I need more work. And he goes, well, there's some uh, there's some people here who are uncomfortable with what you've done, and 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 they don't want to work with you. And well, quite frankly, I can't make them work for you, so I can't give you any more assignments as a leader. Now, that's kind of shocking when you are a a manager and you all of a sudden have no programs to manage. And so you know, I was like, oh, okay, and left his office, and you know. Sat down and figured out uh, what do I what do I need to do, and it was obvious that it was time to find someone else to work for. And so I went to the vice president of the division and kind of told him the story and said, you know, what can I do? And he goes, well, let me find something. We've got a new opportunity, and ended up uh, became chief uh, chief engineer on a different program. Um, was working with more external customers. Uh, uh, collaborating with uh uh with a bit another big corporation so i was the head of the uh, the raytheon contingent of about 60 people and it was a great opportunity but uh you know it was like well sometimes you just have to make a lateral decision to keep moving forward and there there are several things that happened like that either that were directly related to my transition uh or decisions where I felt I needed to stand my ground because it was the right thing to do that ended up costing me a spot in my career. And I had to figure out a way to, to work around that. And I, I don't regret decisions that I've made because they kind of helped form who I am. Um, I regret the way other people dealt with me and my decisions at time. And uh, there are sometimes things that they have to live with, but but that's for them. For me, I need to figure out how to conti continue to to grow myself, uh, mature, and be a, a leader. Speaking of making those decisions and sometimes needing to make a change, you've also talked about coming to a crossroads in your life where the options were basically either risk everything or not proceeding at all. What led you to that point and and why did you conceive of it in that way? Well, yeah, what what you're uh, alluding to Liz is when I made the recognition that I needed to transition gender. And you know, I had seen therapists, um, you know, something I had been struggling with 
for, I mean, I remember back into the, uh, you know, early 1960s, so last century, I know, um, where I was, I was struggling and dealing with this. And, and I finally came to the realization of who I was and what was, what I needed to do. And it was to me that really stark of a choice because I had seen others who had struggled with, with this decision, um, and have literally taken their lives. I mean, we're talking, you know, pistol in the mouth. Or I had another friend who, who hung himself from a doorknob in a care facility. And, and, and those are hard lessons. So I realized that if I was going to continue, if I was going to survive, I had to accept that as a potential outcome. But also to say, I choose that that is not the path I want to be on and formulate a way to move forward and avoid that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, it, it came to that and I was willing to lose family, friends, career, but I wasn't willing to lose my life. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm, so, I'm sounding so down. Help me out here. <laughs> no, that's. That is a big part of how we have to talk about these moments. We have to understand these moments, hopefully in the way that we can use them to make change, not only in our lives, but also in the lives of others. So they never have to go through some of these things. But understanding how we got here, I think, is vitally important. And I think that kind of leads into some of your coming out story. Now, before we get there, I'll just relate. I last year had the opportunity to go speak at a uh, Norwegian military college. And I talked with one of their generals and he said, well, we don't have any trans people in the Norwegian military. I'm like, well, clearly with you conscript everyone, you simply don't have any that you know about or that are willing to come out. And so that environment where there's no one where you have to be the first can be really intimidating. Can you tell us a little bit about your story in coming out to your boss for that first time in a company where you were probably the first, maybe the only uh, that was there and how you break those barriers? Well, it's, it's interesting because there was certainly a perception that there was no one, um, but I knew there were others. There were others that had transitioned um, either there at the facility I was at in Tucson, Arizona, which is, you know, a small community, but Raytheon was a huge company there with like, uh, what was it, like six or seven, ten, I forget, thousand employees. It was big. Um, one of the largest employers in the city. But no one in the company seemed to know. And, and quite frankly, they were, um, they were female to male and had transitioned, moved to a different part of the organization, or had transferred to a different facility, uh, and just blended in, no one knew. And I knew, for me, I was pretty high profile. You know, I was managing programs, I was the director of flight operations, um, I was the, you know, chief test pilot for the, co uh, the company, and I, it, this wasn't going to be something quiet. And I knew, knew I needed to confront it straight up. And so 
to me, the way to deal with that is to go to the top. If I, I felt if I can get buy-in from the head of the organization, then that's going to flow back down to the people that I work with and the people that work for me. So I went to uh, um, the CEO of the missile company, vice president of, of Raytheon. Uh, her name's Louise Francisconi, good friend. I had known her actually for many years. And uh, at the time, she, you know, she's heading up a $5 billion defense segment, right? We're making missiles. Our customers are the U.S. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine. You know, I mean, that's the customer. And uh, I made an appointment early one morning and show up in her office. And when I started to tell her what I was going through, or certainly intended to tell her, I, no words came out. And I just absolutely broke down in tears because I knew that I was making a step that was irreversible. You know, I'd come out to some family members and some close friends, some of which I lost. But coming out to the head of the, this big corporation, I knew that there was no going back, that this was, this was, was, was it. This was going out. She helped me compose myself. And over the course of the next half hour, I kind of explained to her what was going on. And her first, first thing she said was, well, we can relocate you anywhere in the corporation with the same pay, same responsibilities, uh, and you can start fresh somewhere else. And, and I said, no, that's, that's not what I want to do. I have a support system here. Um, I have my son, uh, who was like four years old at the time, and I, 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 I wasn't going to leave that and, and start all over again. Plus, I mean, I really did enjoy what I was working on and the people that, that I was working with. And so I wanted to, I said, I wanted to transition my gender, stay in place. And she turns to me, she goes, wow, that takes balls. And I said, well, not for long, <laughs> but, you know, we, we talked about things and she, you know, she did joke as a, as a woman in the aerospace industry, she goes, you realize you're going to have to take a, you know, an 18% pay cut. Uh, to get in line with the other women um, at your level, which I thought was funny that she brought that up, which is apparently a sore point for her. Uh, but what we did over the over the course of that time was put together a plan on who to talk to, how to put together uh, the procedure that the company was going to deal with this. And we're talking like six months or so before I actually transition my gender. So there was this time period where I was working with the vice president of HR and the leaders of my organization to kind of educate them on what was going to happen. So when I transitioned, it wasn't going to be a shock because I knew I had been struggling with my identity for some time, but nobody else had. Right. So while to me it was something I wanted to do right away, I knew for others it was going to have to be introduced. And and that was a that was an important step. I think it worked out really, really well. Um, as part of that process, I worked with um, a gentleman uh, who's no longer with us outside of the company. 
Um, and we put together that plan that we presented with the comp to the company and, and worked through it. And the wonderful thing is that plan has really been adopted by corporations around the world in the, what, 25 years since. And it's become the standard because we, we shared it. We didn't keep it a secret. We we were very open about it. I mean, HR said, no one's ever done this before. And I said, well, yes, they have. You just don't remember because you've never documented it. And we're going to document it this time. We're going to remember what worked. We're going to understand what doesn't work. And this is going to be uh, this model that will be used going forward. And, and that was, you know, worked really well. Certainly there were, I mean, there were bumps. I mean, there were, there were, the issues along the way. I, I, I spoke about that meeting with, uh, with that director, but uh, the first week I transitioned, um, they had a, a meeting with, and they brought in specialists and psychiatrists and psychologists and, and invited anybody who wanted to come and listen. Well, except for me, I wasn't invited. So you've got a, an auditorium with a couple hundred people talking about me and I'm just literally down the hall, really kind of an eerie feeling. Um, I got some feedback because I had some friends in there. And for instance, people express concerns like, well, she's obviously mentally unstable. And as a company pilot, she's going to fly a plane full of our employees into the side of a mountain and commit suicide and, and mass murder. I mean, these were concerns that were vocalized by my friends and coworkers, right? Um, of course, there was always the concern over where I would go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Voluntarily for a while, I used a, a single stall restroom in the lobby of one of the buildings. Um, you know, and then and there's stories about how that came to end and whatever, but it was, I realized that it was gonna be a, a shock for others but I wanted to make them feel as comfortable as possible and figure out a way for me to resume and continue doing what I thought was important and become remain an asset to the corporation and a value to my customers, right? I'm sure we had, you know, there were some uh, talk about, well, we need to take you off programs because, you know, your customers, the U.S. military, and this is not a, U this is not a military um, policy. The uh, military doesn't accept uh, LGBT people. Keep in mind at the time, high security clearance. Um, I was taking, um, you know, oaths and lie detectors, you know, that uh, with regards to lifestyle choices and all that sort of stuff. And then, quite frankly, I was not always fairly honest on those things because I wasn't comfortable <laughs> at this point coming out and potentially losing my job. And it was interesting that the some of those program managers on the military side on a, uh, uh, said, no, we we worked with her for years. We know and value her ability to do her job. Don't replace her. And I, and I, and that was, that, I mean, made me feel good. And we were very, very successful on some, some quite unique programs. Um, but, you know, it was, there was challenging periods and, you know, I stayed, there for another decade. So. so the fact that the organization was able to capture and then share 
the procedures and processes that they utilize to do this at an organizational level and an HR level is phenomenal. Um, And something that we aim to accomplish with this podcast is helping folks understand how they can better support LGBTQ leaders and, and other personnel inside their organizations. What were some of the things that you observed that maybe individual leaders did that were beneficial and helpful? What what was done right? And what advice would you give to other leaders in organizations trying to do this well? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Liz, because it's all about finding the right allies. And um, sometimes someone you thought was an ally may turn, you know, may not be. So you have to be careful and, and reach out to as many people as you can, but also be prepared for, quite frankly, um, I think we call them turncoats. But, um, it, you know, I told the story earlier about coming out to that director and, you know, how he wouldn't give me any more assignments. Well, the vice president of HR found out about this. And, well, Jim was let go. He retired early. And when he asked to come back as a consultant, the company said no. All right. And when I started, you know, went and said I was no longer going to start, you know, keep using the one single stall restroom, but use the women's room, and someone complained and started a petition that I should be prevented from using that restroom. Um, it got up to up to upper management and they say, we don't manage by petition. And if we find that there is such a petition, uh, we're going to fire everyone whose name is on it. I mean, that's leadership standing behind their employees, right? Oftentimes I talk about leadership and um, leaders have to have people that follow you. And when you're a leader, you're responsible for all the people in your command, if to, to borrow a phrase, um, not just for their careers, but for their personal well-being while, you, while they are there uh, doing their work. And you have to remember that as a leader. It's not just about making decisions about how to move forward for, the, for your organization and, you know, what to do and but it's about supporting those the people who work for you. You know, I've always said uh, as a leader, my job is to clear the way for the people underneath me to do their job, right? It's, it's not about taking credit for what they do, but making sure that they can succeed. And that's the key, I think, to the leaders who are trying to support LGBT employees. They need to step up and do it. And, and and make sure that it is clearly demonstrated and why I went to the to the top of the organization when I came out that that this was the path forward that they had to support their employees in this case it was me and that I would then return that with not just dedication to my job but now I could bring my whole self to work right and I mean, my career, you know, just continued to move forward, maybe even accelerated at times, certainly (laughs) for the opportunity that I, when I left that uh, organization 10 years later, uh, you know, because I was truly authentic to who I am and was willing to make decisions that were in the best interest of 
the organization, and the people who worked for me. That is incredibly valuable insight into the process and, and what it takes to support people. One thing that I've kind of pulled out of that as, as we've been talking is the value of time as a leadership skill and something that we always have to figure out how to balance uh, in what we give and to whom we give it to. And so you talked about going to your uh, CEOs, the, the senior VP, who gave you enough time to both compose yourself and to work through a plan on things with you. And that's incredibly valuable. And you, as someone who is very generous with their time, when I was making that decision and that point to transition, gave me your time to sit down at the drop of a hat nearly and talk me through some of the things that were on my mind. So how do you, as a leader, decide where your time goes? What do you do to balance that where you're giving it to others versus, you know, doing the work that you may have been assigned and how do those two relate? Well, I mean, that, that's going to be the trait of any leader understanding how to, how to manage time. Right. Um, there's a, you know, today we carry around uh, our electronic devices and, you know, back working in the Pentagon, it was, you know, you had multiple, I had multiple phones on my desk and people coming in and out. Um, and they were all, there was always all that urgency, but sometimes you had to ignore the phone. You had to shut the door because the person sitting across the desk from you, the person sitting next to you on the couch that is talking to you, that is the most important thing at the time and, and, and must not be interrupted. Um, I think people are too apt to pick up the, the phone because if it's ringing, it must be urgent. no. If you're getting a text, it must be something that needs to be responded to immediately. Probably not. Um, understanding the difference between urgency, priority, and necessity are, are some of the keys that, that go into to leadership. And, um, you know, we have the things we like to do and we have the things we must do. And I often felt that working and developing the people that came to me for assistance that was usually pretty high on the list. And if that meant that the work needed to go <laughs> into the evening or into the weekend, well, then that was what was necessary. And, you know, here we are on a weekend. So <laughs> it's what we do. Well, thank you for being here on a weekend. And, and for me, it's one of the most fun types of work I could possibly do on a weekend. Um, the story you just shared really illustrated a, a sense of service and a sense of duty and obligation to support others who are in need, and then being able to prioritize those needs um, despite many competing demands. And I think that's a, a perfect segue to move forward a little bit to 2004, when you decided to run for office um, in the Arizona legislature. What was it that made you want to make that move from corporate to public leadership? There, there was a variety of different factors. Part of it was during that time when um, things were getting a little slow at work. And I said, well, I better do something to keep myself involved. I had already been uh, working kind of within the political community as I had been appointed uh, as a commissioner for the city of Tucson Commission on LGBT Issues, uh, which was the first commission in the country ever to, to kind of focus on that. And so 
and then, you know, I'm quite frank about it. I looked at the, the folks who were representing us up in, in, in Phoenix and going, oh, hell, I can do a lot better job than they were. Heck, I'm a rocket scientist. I can figure this political thing out. Um, what I didn't figure out really well was, you know, how to raise money. Um, and, and I got my the word out and, and all, but I was in a a primarily Republican uh, leaning district, and I was a Democrat. Um, I did win the primary election, but fell a little short in the general, only taking 40% of the vote. But I was outspent nine to one by my opponents. So I felt, you know, a little vindicated there. But it it was something I, I looked at as like, okay, I had transitioned my gender years earlier. And to me, as it is now, looking at a way to give back or to give forward, you know, whichever way you want to look at it. I mean, I had been at that point survivor, successful, um, had kept my job, had kept parts of my family um, and was, you know, seeing a path forward. But I knew that there were others, whether, you know, it was in the LGBT community or quite frankly, my neighbors on the street that I felt a, a, a desire to help and serve them. And so that's how I got involved in politics. It was, sure, it was a kind of one of those leap off the bridge kind of moments, but, um, you know, it, 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 the connections that's, that, I, that happened in 2004 developed over time so that by the time 2008 came around, several elections later, and I decided I wasn't going to run for office again, but I got, you know, I got elected as a delegate uh, at large for the state of Arizona to represent at the Democratic National Convention that year. And it was there that I met representatives from Senator Clinton and Senator Obama's campaign. And Conventions are awesome, folks. There, yeah, there's some work that has to be done and issues that are dealt with, but it's a lot of partying, and it's really about making those network connections. Um, there was a a particular scene I think that all that I, <laughs> sticks out of my mind. Um, I was talking to Barney Frank, who the former um, congressman from Massachusetts, and um, we were kind of yelling at each other, and and the and and the if you know Barney. Uh, if you knew Barney, he had a tendency to kind of raise his voice. But we were yelling at each other in violent agreement. Um, but he respected me more because I was willing to go toe to toe with him. And that's how he listened to people. If you kind of, you know, backed off when he was um, getting a little gruff. Well, then he knew that, you know, whatever. But I, we were friends for like forever after that. Um, and, and, and it was those connections after that that got, led to a phone call from the White House uh, you know, some months after the inaugural, well, a month after the inauguration, which kind of blew me away because they remembered me. And it's that networking that leads to these opportunities to try something different, to maybe stretch a little and excel uh, in a new way. And, you know, yeah, I had to walk away from a a really good career at the time, take a huge pay cut, move myself at my expense across the country um, and serve. And I, I, you know, I look back at it and those eight years were, were spectacular. 
um, the idea of serving our nation to represent the interests of our country on a national, international stage. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I was in, in meetings where, you know, I had the American flag in front of me and then, you know, across the table was someone with, you know, the, uh, their country's flag and we're negotiating. The, I'm like, wow, you know, this is pretty amazing to be in that position. And then when, you know, joining the, uh, the Department of Defense and realizing that I had millions of soldiers, particularly as I was with the Army first, that my decisions were going to be potential life and death or certainly quality of life uh, indicators for them, uh, it, it kind of hits home that, you know, what that means. And it's not about the paycheck and it's not about the notoriety. Um, it's about walking away from at the end of the day, knowing that you've helped other people. And, and that um, to this day is still, and, and that's kind of, you know, one of part of my ethos is to make sure that I leave people better every day. So we've covered the value of time for leaders. You just talked about the value of networks. I also want to talk a little bit about how the style of leadership may change on the context, the classic situational leadership. You've served in a number of different corporate positions. You just talked about your time in government service and then back to corporate positions. How does your leadership change or doesn't it between some of those positions? And how do you adjust based on the job at hand? Well, it's interesting to reflect upon because you know, I've always felt that my leadership style was a collaborative one. And certainly um, as an appointee walking into the U.S. government, whether it was in the Department of Commerce and the Department of Army, Department of Defense, uh, you're walking into an organization that already exists, an organization that already has a history. It has a mission. It has uh, a way of working. And you're the new person in there. And all of a sudden you're in charge, right? You're the leader. And if you come in and start barking out orders, uh, that that's to me an authoritarian way of working, and that's not my style. I'm one to listen. I'm one to understand what others' ideas are and work with that team to find the way, the path forward. Um, I had a... Um, an advisor, a mentor once, who, who gave me great advice. And she said, and this is something I've absolutely taken to heart and used many times. She says, if you have a, a, a path forward, you have a, a way to kind of deviate from what has worked in the past. And you want to steer the organization in that direction. Maybe a better way to do it is make it somebody else's idea. And I do that oftentimes by, you know, having a meeting and then we'll bring up a, a subject and we'll start discussing it. And with the questions I ask, I'll lead the room towards a path that I see as an option until someone will come up with that path that I maybe have already thought about for some time ago. 
and wait for others to kind of pile onto that. And then we'll take that, that kernel and work it into a real idea. And, and when people, when it's their idea, they get behind it and they're willing to commit to it. If it was just a leader com, uh, coming forward and saying, do this, eh, maybe, maybe not. But if this is a very Socratic method that you're yeah. using. <laughs> yeah, well, um, it works. <laughs> but, it, but, it, but you have to be in tune with your people. You have to listen and understand what's important to them. Right. Uh, um, That's just kind of the way I see as as being a leader. Right. Not a manager. But a true leader. You've also said before that as it relates to making change, that most often changes are made one on one. So that skill set to listen, understand, um, tap in and get so in tune with people that you can channel the ideas through them. What is it about that, that you're then able to scale that up, if you will? How do we move from that one-on-one, which is so essential and so effective, but would also take us a very, very long time, especially as we're talking about making big social or cultural changes. So how do we scale that up to the institutional or organizational or even societal levels? And there's a couple of ways. Well, one is, you know, we do those one-on-one changes and then we, we do so, and we hopefully do that in such a way that they adopt that as their new ethos that the way that they do it. And then they spread that on to other people and you have that, you know, building uh, of, of context effect. The other way, uh, which when I do public speaking, um, whether it was, you know, when I did last month, uh, for an organization where we were talking about LGBT issues as part of um, TDOR, Transgender Day of Remembrance. Uh, or it was like yesterday when I was teaching, um, a guest lecturing a class for Syracuse University on aerospace issues, is to, get, is to make that an emotional connection, right? Um, get people involved in what you're talking about so they feel part of it. You know, when I was talking about uh, at that TDOR presentation, I mean, I had a room full of people mostly in tears because I made them understand what it meant to me and what it meant to others and how it reflected upon society and how it reflected upon them. And they accepted that into themselves. Okay, a room of a couple hundred people, but maybe even many of them would take that out and talk about it and, 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 and change others around them. And that's how you start that cultural change. Um, uh, yesterday in the classroom, um, it was about getting excitement about the new technologies that are being applied in uh, the aerospace industry, particularly with, I was talking about sustainability, and, and, and get them going, wow, this is really cool. And these are students, right? Graduate students, but still students that have their whole careers ahead of them that want to know how they can make their mark and to talk about things that get them excited so that then they can apply that to their path. That's how you change larger groups. And and so, yeah, you can do it one-on-one. You can do it in small groups. You can do it in large groups. but they're slightly 
um, different skill sets. You know, you're not going to walk in on a one-on-one and do a, you know, an emotional presentation. You're going to do that communication and listen. Um, and, it, and it's different when you're at a podium in front of a large group, um, as I will be uh, this week in front of uh, five or 6,000 people down, down in Orlando. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's, so, of course, Bree, thank you for nominating me for that award. That'll get uh, Monday morning. But I'm also on several panels um, throughout the week because once I'm down there, well, why not? So, Well, let's talk about that because by the time this episode will air, you will have won the uh, Mary Jackson Diversity and Inclusion Award for the um, for AIAA. And in recent years, you won the Out and Equal LGBTQ Corporate Advocate Award. You also won the LGBTQ Victory Institute Hall of Fame induction. So these awards are important. Uh, they are things that inspire. Uh, they are things that recognize the success uh, of LGBTQ individuals. What does it mean to you? And then also, what does it mean to the community for these awards to be out there and to be available uh, to all of us? Yeah, well, for me, I guess a couple of things. One, I got a lot of nice lucite on the uh, shelf. (laughs) But uh, I mean, to me, it it validates the, the work I do that it, you know, because you mentioned at the beginning, you know, AIAA, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronauts, is giving me this award that, this next week, which you nominated me for. Thank you. Uh, you know, I'm a fellow with them. I mean, I've reached the highest level of 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 recognition in the aerospace industry, um, you know, and, and amongst legends um, in aviation and in aerospace. Um, and it's, it's amazing, you know, for me to be there, to be recognized for that. And then also to say, oh, by the way, you did this while you are promoting diversity. And, and so, yes, one of the panels I'm speaking on, uh, at the SciTech conference this week, uh, is about aviation and aerospace sustainability, but then I'm also going to do another panel on women's issues and how we get more women involved in the aerospace community. Right. So I can do both of those things and to be recognized by organizations to say, yeah, the technical side is important, um, but also the personal side of what we do is critical. Uh, those those mean things, particularly when they come together. Right. I, I don't want to be seen as a um, professional gay person um, or LGBTQ plus person. Right. I, I, I want to be recognized as someone who contributed to society in moving us all forward and doing so in a way that allows others to do the same. Um, I think it was, um, oh my gosh, um, I'm trying to remember his name. Um, We used to say that starting a path is really hard. You know, we really don't mind using the ones that are there, but you know, if you're going to start your own path that no one's ever walked down, you have to hold the grass down at first, right? And, and then eventually, not only kick open the door, but it's important that you walk that path enough times that the, 
that the grass is worn down so that others recognize it as a path. And that door that you kicked open, you got to make sure that it stays held open, that others can walk through. And, and, and that's part of what we do um, in the LGBTQ plus community. But it's also what we have to do as a leader in any organization um, is to push for those things that we think are, are necessary and important, not only for the organization, but for the um, bigger ecosystem and, and just keep pushing. Um, and then eventually people will follow and people will make that path, um, you know, more of a road that others are stampeding down uh, through now what was a door is now a gateway, um, you know, and, and all of a sudden you've realized you've changed the world. And um, yeah, the recognition is nice and, and it and it's important for others so that they can see that at least highlight those who have done that. But the real satisfaction is knowing that those gateways now exist, that people are flowing through them um, on a trajectory that may not have, quote, been available to me when I started. So the work that you're doing now to create those gates and keep the doors open and the paths paved it really exemplifies something that you shared with us before the interview of thinking about the phase of retirement um, instead thinking of it as preferment, which a friend of yours coined, I suppose. And the things that you're sharing with us that you're choosing, that you're preferring to put your time and energy and substantial leadership expertise into clearly are going to change the world. And we like to ask our guests, you know, why did they choose or prefer to say yes to doing this podcast? And, and what is it that you hope to see as a result of this work for the community? Well, I, I often, <laughs> I have a hard time saying no. So there's this whole thing about the preferment um, that you have the opportunity to say no, but I look at opportunities um, and say, okay, what does it bring to me? Um, but also how is it also giving and contributing to others? Uh, where's where's the value proposition? And when I was asked to, to do this and a long time ago, uh, I, I felt that this was something that absolutely would contribute to the rest of the community. I mean, if if my name wasn't on this and my voice was somehow disguised, so no one knew it was me, I'd still be very, very happy if this was was broadcast because I think there are there are lessons that I've learned in my 40 some odd years in industry, in my 25 plus years um, in the LGBT community that others can use. And, I, you know, I, I, I think a society needs to value the lessons that others have learned. Otherwise, we're not making progress, right? You have to build upon the success and the experience of the people who have come before to know to to move forward otherwise you're just going every which way and you don't you know and the society isn't going to mature so yeah, that's that's why i said yes 
Amanda Simpson, we are thrilled you said yes. We are thrilled you have opened those doors, blazed those trails, and left an opportunity for those that follow to go even further, because that's really what it's all about. No, I'm getting teary-eyed, so... We love getting a little emotional about all this stuff. If it wasn't a passion for all of us, we wouldn't be here. So I'm so glad you were able to join us. And this has been such a great start to season two. We look forward to sharing even more stories uh, and thanking every leader who is willing to share their time with us. Thank you for listening to this episode. The views and ideas expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the organizations or institutions they represent. Forged in Fire is a collective effort brought to you by a fantastic team of passionate individuals. This podcast is produced and engineered by Frida Castellanos, media production by Christina George, operations by Imogene Thomas, and communications by Chelsea Asplund. Brief Ram serves as executive producer and hosts the show along with Dr. Liz Caballero. But we couldn't do this without the inspiration provided by LGBTQ plus leaders around the world working hard to build a better future for all. For more information, visit our website at forgedinfire.org.